Can't get enough of football? Chance! Goal! Superhuman! Special, special goal! Incredible! Just incredible! Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Welcome to the third in Football Insiders podcast, the podcast home for Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. In case you missed our first two episodes with Trevor Thompson and Jason Goldsmith, you can have a listen via our website at fairplaypublishing.com.au or find them on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Today, I'm speaking with one of the true treasures of Australian football, described by Andy Harper as, quote, a once-in-a-generation football anorak. The one and only Andrew Howe, statistician with the Australian Bureau of Statistics by day, author of the Encyclopedia of Socceroos, co-author of the Encyclopedia of Matildas, an official statistician for our game before anyone even realised that we needed an official statistician. If there's something Andrew doesn't know about the facts and figures of football in Australia, then it simply isn't worth knowing. So grab a coffee and enjoy the listen as today's Football Insiders episode chats with Andrew. Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Benita. Thanks for having me along. It's always a pleasure to have a chat with you. I guess we'll start by asking how you're coping with social isolation. Well, the introvert side of me is loving it. I can just uh, <laughs> bury myself or hide myself in my, my home office here and plug away at the stats. So as, as, a, as a statistician, been doing a lot of data work for, for, for almost 30 years now and, and Whereas I did a lot of that data work in the 90s to sort of set me up for you know, more outputting and, and, and telling the stories from them with that, there was, there was a, f- a few holes I'd, I'd left back in the 90s when I was in that more input phase and I've, I've, I've gone back to, to filling in those holes. A lot of minute details about early NSL years, uh, National Soccer League years, things like substitute times and, and that sort of thing, which which might sound all a bit techy and boring, but what where I'm at now, as at last week, is, is I've now, you know, in, in terms of Australia's National Men's League, the National Soccer League and the A-League, got a complete minute-by-minute minute record of which players are on the field at any, any point in time. So, yeah, in terms of the hardcore data work, yeah, I've sort of been doing a lot of that. But, look, I am, I am missing a lot of things about interacting more with, with people and looking forward to, to getting back out, going to football games, going to concerts and, yeah, seeing people face-to-face. As, uh, you know, we, we're getting by with the video conferencing and, and, the, and the video calls, but, yeah, I still, I still prefer the, the face-to-face contact. So. Yeah, it's always much better to have a cup of coffee with someone face-to-face rather than virtually like this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated by what you say. You can now tell us at any minute of any game, NSL and A-League era, who was on the pitch at any one time. What would make you want to do that? <laughs> uh, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic, and I'm sure lots of people listening will be loving it, but mm-hmm. what makes you want to do it? I guess, you know, when I started this, that was my, my aim to have a, you know, as complete record as I could on Australia's men's and, and the women's uh, football leagues. And having the ability to manipulate that data means, you know, the more data you have in, the more you can get out of it. So, you know, in addition to that, you know, minute by minute information on who's on the field at a particular point in time, you can, you can do analysis on in terms of you know, how often teams score with having less uh, players. And that sort of thing. What goalkeepers have had 
the best records in terms of minutes, uh, keeping goals and, and, and conceding goals. But what I can also do with, with the database is, is link that match information with, with the player information so we can get a better sense of the backgrounds of players, you know, how many minutes were played by overseas-born players back in the day compared to nowadays, what countries did they come from back then compared to now. And what I've also been doing over the past three or four years is, is adding a, a geographic aspect to my database. So anything I can, what we call in the, uh, in, in the business geocode, anything I can associate with a place, so whether that's a, a venue of a game, uh, whether that's a player's birthplace or whether that's a player's previous club, all these things can now be put into the mix to do some really interesting analysis of a lot of dimensions. My favourite dimension is is when it comes to Australian soccer is the geography, is the player backgrounds, not just where players were born and were raised, but in what clubs they've played at. And over the next few months with the lockdown, yeah, I'm aiming to do more in terms of outputting this sort of information. Wonderful things that you've mentioned in all of that. I don't know where to start with it, but one of the things that struck me that you've picked up on is... The very first time I read a draft of the Encyclopedia of Socceroos, which as you and I now know was almost getting on for three years ago, one of the things that struck me straight away, even though we probably all know it, that players have come from all over the world, that they've lived in all sorts of places, it, for the very first time you realised what that narrative was around that and mm. how particularly our national team but also football more broadly is the story of Australia's migration. Do you want to touch upon that and talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The um, yeah, the release of the book. Thanks so much to uh to to Fair Play Publishing and yourself, obviously, Benita. The release of the Encyclopedia of Socceroos gave me an opportunity to to get out and and tell the story, not just the individual players. When the the book is stories about individuals. When I was promoting the book with with the uh, with the launches and a couple other events, what I tried to do was was to to tell the story of the Socceroos, you know, almost a hundred-year history, in terms of those players, where those players have come from, and there's a real f- fascinating correlation, uh, statistical term there, between you know where where our best men's players have come from over the century or over the yeah since the 1920s, and Australia's population. So in the 20s and 30s, had around a fifth of the country born overseas, and around a fifth of Socceroos were born overseas. Their source countries tended to be UK and Ireland. Now, get to the middle of the 1900s, the World War II times and um, post-Depression years, migration really stopped or slowed down significantly in the, in the 20s and 30s. So by the, the 40s, you had less than 10% of Australians were actually born overseas. That was also reflected in the makeup of the, of the men's national team. Post-World War II, with the war having its its impact, especially in southern and eastern Europe, well, all over the world really, but those parts of the of the world where we had a lot of migrants coming from those parts to to help build Australia, the proportion of the the country born overseas increased through the the fifties and sixties, and again the national team reflected that as well. But what we're seeing by the sixties, you had a roughly the same proportion of people born overseas as you had in the early 1900s, but that makeup, that that background, that those countries were a lot more diverse in the 60s and, and uh, well, especially the 60s. And it's not wasn't just Southern and Eastern Europe. Obviously, UK and Ireland was still a, a big source country, but 
Yeah, South Americans and started to have a trickle from, from the South and Eastern Asian countries as well. Now, through to the 70s and 80s, that correlation between overseas-born Australians, population overseas-born Socceroos, started to, to diverge in, in the 80s and 90s. And what we're seeing now is, is in terms of the makeup of the, the men's national team, very small proportion actually born overseas which is in contrast to the total Australian population, now we've got 30% of Australians are now born overseas. What we've seen over the past 20 or so years is a, is a big influx of people born in, in um, especially in the southern, southern and eastern Asia, where we're not seeing that reflected in, in the Australian national team. It is really fascinating and I think it says a lot probably about a couple of things. One, the cultural aspects yeah. of whether parents of those children think it's appropriate for them to be pursuing a career as a sports sportsman, as in this instance, mm-hmm. but also socioeconomically and the cost of the game. And sure. that's, you know, that gets back to some of the big issues for, for football in Australia, doesn't it? it? It does, yeah, yeah. And the other aspects I like to, um, to, to bring up in, in terms of relating the, the backgrounds of the most prominent players with, with the population is, is a low representation from other socioeconomic groups. Uh, indigenous population is, is one thing there as well. So still not many of our highest profile soccerers have, have an Indigenous background, whereas we're up to around 3% of Australians are Indigenous. And also rural and regional Australia, the low representation of, of people for those parts of the country uh, with our high profile teams, men's and women's teams, more so the men's teams, there is that low representation there. So yeah, now whether that how, how that comes down to access, uh, affordability, certainly those aspects would, would be coming into it. But what, what it means is there's, there's all these growth potentials for the game. You know, we, we talk about, you know, I don't mind bringing up the, these socioeconomic groups that aren't, aren't represented because in my mind as well, look, you know, this is, if we want to grow the game further in terms of participants, in, in terms of elite, building up the elite uh, personnel. Yeah, yeah. There's these uh, regions. The most recently arrived are migrants, overseas migrants, uh, Indigenous population and rural and regional Australia is, uh, is, is where we can go. Which hopefully, you know, someone like James Johnson understands better, than, well, certainly better than any other CEO we've had at FFA, but certainly mm. better than a lot of others because he comes from a regional area himself. I mean, he comes from Rockhampton. When you look at where there's a shortage and I put that in inverted commas of people from different groups, whether it be Indigenous, rural, regional, because that, that's a really good point. We almost satisfy those numbers with players who cross over each of those areas, e.g. Jade North is from Tari mm-hmm. in New South mm-hmm. Wales, Frank Farina from Cairns, and yet they're also Indigenous. So, you know, it's, it, it just emphasises where, one, there's opportunity, but two, where we have failed to, I guess, bridge that gap and it, um, you know, I think it all gets down to affordability, accessibility of the game, and it's our number one issue that we need to address, mm-hmm. improve that player pool. Definitely, yep, yep. Another thing that I'd love you to talk about, you talk about geocoding. I'm aware, and hardly anyone else will be, but we're sitting on that uh, FFA History and Heritage Committee together, which is it was very active for a little while and had done quite a lot of things, but you did a marvellous wonderful thing you mapped the first 500 clubs in Australia and that also tells a story because it's really surprising where those clubs are yeah well this is building on on the work of people such as, as Peter Kunz uh, Ian Sison especially and and a few others around the country where 
they'll do the work in terms of digging up who, who these clubs, who the, the earliest clubs are. And then what I like to do is, with, with a lot of aspects of my work, it's, it's like, I mean, I, I love the history. I, lo- I love talking about things that happened 100 years ago. I, I still don't feel that the majority of Australians of them, soccer fans, really get turned on by by talking about things that happened so long ago. What I like to try to do is, is use you know, modern technology to, to try to present or visualise that sort of information better. Uh, and also, as we were talking about before, just, just relate history to what's happened in the past to put a contemporary perspective on it. You know, how far have we come? Have we grown? Have we contracted? And what metrics can we use to measure uh, if we've if we've in a better or worse state than what, what we were, you know, 20, 50, 100 years ago. But yeah, the maps are a lot of fun. I, I, I love maps. I think it's you know, maps are becoming a, a very commonplace way of of, of presenting information. Uh, everyone loves loves a map. So yeah, if you can if you can promote display this all this historical information that a lot of us are, are working on at the moment, if you can display in a, in a map that you can flash up on a website or or a, a, you know through a tweet or a Facebook page, trying to do more of that. Yeah, which gets back to you. You've mentioned a couple of times you like telling the stories and using the data to be able to tell a story. We should just turn to the Encyclopedia of Socceroos. Uh, it was published now just a little under two years ago. Great thing about an encyclopedia, it's not ever really out of date. Having said that, Andrew is working on a, a centenary version for 2022. But going back to those stories, because you tell the stories of every single person who's played an A international and and a handful of others as well, what struck you as one of the best individual stories when you were writing that up or one of the most Um, fascinating or or little-known intriguing stories? Yeah, okay. In terms of those A international players, so roughly 600, we've just hit 600 A international players that you, you can read about them. I'm just just getting the book out now, actually. Aku Roth, I, I guess, is is an interesting one. Now, Aku, I'm not sure if that was short for a longer name. I've forgotten about the uh, all these players. Now, he was born in, in the early part of the, the well, 1903 in Warsaw, which was then a part of Russia. He was raised in Germany and migrated to Melbourne in the, in the 20s to work with a cousin of his in the wholesale fur trade. So these are the things I love picking up as I was, as I was uh, collecting the information about the players. Now, Aku played a couple of games in, in, in the 30s. Uh, he ended up being a, a prominent person in the Australian Jewish community back then. And there's still, a well, f- for several decades, there was a trophy called the A.N. Roth Trophy, which was played for by the most prominent Melbourne and Sydney Jewish Hakoa clubs uh, at the time. So it's those little nuggets that I liked that really, you know, there's a lot, of, you spend a lot of time digging into the, the player information and, and as much as you know, the focus on the book is these players play for Australia and here were the games they played for Australia. It's, it's yeah, again, it's, the, it's the sort of the, this background of players which I really liked. Um, really enjoyed in terms of doing the, the research. Now, we've just very recently discussed, Benita, about that next edition, and my aim is to add the non-A international players. Okay, so over 900 men have played for the Socceroos. 600 of those have played an A international. So that was our scope for the, 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 the first, first edition. edition. There was a list of the, of the 920 in the appendix of the encyclopedia, what I'm aiming to do now is add biographies for each of those around 300 players who played non-A international games, so play, who, who represented Australia still, 
but not against the country, more so against a big club side or a, a representative team like an English FA, for example, who, who teams from the English FA came out over, over the century. Their matches aren't considered A-internationals. But we have this amazing, even wider variety of players that, that, that played these non-A-international games, especially in the 50s and 60s. A lot of players played one or two games against a, a Hearts or a um, you know, Rapid Vienna touring side. The 50s and 60s where we had that huge surge of, of migrants from lots of different countries and yeah, capturing their stories will make the next edition even more readable. Absolutely fabulous. And I can imagine there will be a few people who've just heard that will be very excited about being able to have those extra 300-odd players in there. One of the other things too is is that's noticeable in the Encyclopedia of Socceroos is is just how amazing some of the careers are of some of our players that we we probably know but we don't necessarily appreciate until it's there in front of us in black and white. Mm. Who amongst them struck you? I mean Tim Kale's an obvious one we all know uh, mm-hmm. of recent times but what about a couple of the others that struck you as having amazing careers for their time? Yeah, in terms of the, the more recent players, Mark Schwarzer, he's, you know, he, well, where are we up to? 110 games that um, Schwarzer played for. And his career, he, he, you know, it was in the early 40s where he, his early 40s where he, um, he, he played until. From the earlier days, our well, captain of the 1974 World Cup side, Peter Wilson, he barely missed a game for the national team for. For, for several years in the early 70s. So to have that consistency, as, as much as, you know, the coaches at the, at the time, like they do now, like to try out different players or considering that aspect, to have um, a player such as Peter Wilson, who was a regular part of that starting lineup for, for so many years in such a critical time, was quite outstanding as, as well. Uh, and then, yeah, the earlier players, you can't go past Joe Marston, who uh, was... It was essentially a pioneer in terms of, of, of our um, Australian footballers who went overseas and ended up playing in an FA Cup final. Played over 50 times for the Australian national team in the late 40s and uh, through to the 50s. So, yeah, there's, there's a couple of names there. You mentioned Mark Schwarzer and you also mentioned when you were talking about the fact that you're, you've now been able to say who was on the pitch at any one time through NSL and A-League era and you particularly noted that you could put all that data together and crunch out whatever you wanted. One of those things was which which goalkeepers have performed the best. Can I put you on the spot and ask you? Okay. Well, in terms of – okay, so again, here to National Australian Men's National Soccer League. Uh, yeah, I was actually looking at these numbers last night, so hopefully I remember a, a couple of them. So we've had roughly 300 actual goalkeepers played in the, in the National Leagues over that time. Um, also another 50 who – or around 40, who filled in, for example, when a player was sent off and there was no backup goalkeeper or all, ups, all substitutes had been used on, on, the, on the bench. So several players have actually never – have gone into goal and never conceded a goal. And a lot of those are those temporary players. Um, so the, the outfield, outfield players. Outfield players, yeah. yeah. So statistically, they have the best records because they've never conceded <laughs> a goal. So players such as uh, Milan Jovinic, who, who played for Perth Glory in the first A-League season, the regular goalkeeper at the time, I can't remember, was was injured. He, he came in and he kept a clean sheet for his game. In terms of a player who's, who's had the longest streak of not conceding a goal, Jeff Olver from the 80s, uh, well, 
his, his main years for the 80s. He played several times for the Socceroos. In terms of number of minutes, he kept uh, the longest uh, run of, of, of clean sheets uh, in the National League. And then he can go to the worst records. And, and, and statistically, I love this one. It, it came out with, with my recent work around four years ago. I was actually at this game. Adelaide United played Brisbane Raw in the last minute. The um, Brisbane goalkeeper was sent off. That Brisbane used all their subs, uh, committed a foul in the penalty box. Isais took the resulting penalty. Uh, Thomas Christensen was the filling goalkeeper. So he was in goals for a minute and he conceded a goal in that minute. So he oh, has the awesome. worst goals <laughs> conceded per minute ratio. I remember so, that game too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was at the Highmarsh uh, Stadium. So. One goal a minute he conceded. So if you, if if Clint Bolton had that that ratio of conceding one goal a minute, he would have conceded. I think it's around forty five thousand goals. Goodness gracious! I hope you're hearing that, Clint. <laughs> <laughs> Might make you feel a bit busy. Um, so Clint Bolton has played the most minutes in in goals in in Australian men's national soccer league history. Yeah. Wow. See, that's incredible. I mean, there's some fantastic stories there and I hope it inspires some people who are listening to just seek them out and write them up and, and do things with it. Of course, your day job is stats as well. And yep. what do you, how do you, how do the two come together? I mean, I, one of the things that struck me when we did the launches of the Encyclopedia of Socceroos is that the two centres where your colleagues were in particular, Canberra and Adelaide, they all came mm. along and supported you and were, were terribly thrilled about you having had this book published. How do the two come together? Yeah, yeah, and no, I've got some some great work, mate. So yeah, so the, yeah, all the football work is 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 my is my hobby essentially. Um, my day job is as a demographer with the Australian Bureau of Statistics. I've been doing that well ever since I left uni over just over thirty years ago now. So quite a while now. Most of that time, I've worked in the dem, yeah demography area of the ABS. So my uh, well, I lead the team that produces the official population figures for, for the country. So if you want to know officially how many people there are in, in, in Sydney, on the Gold Coast, in, in, in Caratha, it's my team that does that. It might sound like a number crunching job, but it's, it's, it's far from it. There's a lot of numbers involved, but you know, we don't have a census. We don't, you don't have to tell the government if you've moved, for example. There's no direct source of revealing how many people there are in regions at time. So we've got to manipulate, analyse data, births data, deaths data, and especially migration data to come up with the official numbers of people. It's become quite, quite prominent in recent weeks with, uh, you know, as, we, as we do this talk, the, the, the COVID-19 situation. And, and you know, in terms of at-risk populations, our, our work's become quite important there to know exactly how many people there are in, in these particular regions that may be more uh, exposed to, to coronavirus, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, anyway, yeah, so that's that's a job I enjoy doing, work with, with some really good people and doing it for so long, I've, I've, I've developed a, a, an appreciation for the history of, of, of demography. I talked before about the story of Australia in terms of its demographic backgrounds. And yeah, it's blended well in, into the, uh, the football stats work. And as I said at the outset, um, you know, you're a true national treasurer of, of football in Australia. And I, I just don't know where we'd be if it wasn't for the fact that you wandered into that game at RPA Leichhardt all those years ago and thought, wow, I love this. What can I find out about it? We're going to finish now, but I just want to finish with two questions I've been asking everyone. And the first is, once this social isolation is over and you can have people over for dinner, which five people in the world would you invite? Mm, mm. I was a bit scared of this question. Um, 
All right. Well, my obsession with the Australian National League, especially in the in the uh, in the early or especially in the eighties, where you know, I must say that that the whole what part of what attracted me to the game was was the ethnic dimension of it. You know, the the, um, the backgrounds of these clubs and how they represented the communities and and the fascinating relationships that, that there would have been in the eighties between clubs and officials and and. And, and and players. So someone who who could tell me a bit more about the ins and outs of of, of 1980s NSL. So maybe someone such as Stefan Kamat. So I'd, I'd invite Stefan along. I'm sure he's got some some stories there that um I remember hearing an interview with Stefan saying um yeah he's got lots of stories that he, he he'd only tell on his deathbed um, <laughs> about well, the uh, in some ways you don't want him there I guess but how are you Stefan <laughs> <laughs> yeah good guy Stefan Craig Foster yeah he's he's someone who's really who I quite admire so obviously a great footballing career there there's a story his story in the, in the encyclopedia but the work he's done more recently with human rights and, and, and refugees is is um yeah something I, I, I admire and respect so getting away from football maybe a a uh, foreign correspondent type journalist something like a Hugh Rimmington I think would be would be fascinating he's reported from so many places uh, around around the globe and been been through some um amazing Tragic, you know, wars and 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 diplomatic events. It'd be it'd be great to get some um one on one. What about Bruce Dickinson? He's the lead singer for Iron Maiden. So I love Gosh. Iron Maiden. So I love that that style of music. So invite him along, and I'm sure he'd uh, he'd fit in well with a uh, with who, with Stephen Craig and Hugh. And I reckon I'd like to have you along, Bonita. Oh, thank you, Andrew. I reckon you'd be you'd, you'd, there's some fascinating stories that that I haven't heard from you about your experience and and just the just the, the people and then the experiences you've been through. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to have you along as well. So oh, I'm very mm. thrilled about that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to come. The second question is is what you're listening to at the moment. So just something we're adding a little playlist so people can have mm. a listen to what our authors are listening to. Mm-hmm. Well. If you're going to ask me a song, I won't. I won't suggest any of this. But I, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of of the heavy style music. So a lot of, um, you know, I mentioned I already mentioned Iron Maiden and, and Judas Priest. There's some uh, bands that are especially prominent in the '80s with a heavy bent. But yeah, like my, my musical tastes are all over the place. So I, you know, I like a little bit of folk music. We're even getting into a bit of country music nowadays. I was hoping to go to a, a country music festival in the US in a couple of months, but um. Those plans uh, will, will need to change. Quite a variety of, of music, mostly on on the heavy side, to, to get me through these uh through these times. While you're working away at Australian Football Data. <laughs> mm, mm, yep. <laughs> yeah, that powers me. Okay. Yeah, I remember back to back to uni days where I, I, I had these these marathon study sessions. I'd have to have the metal pounding in the in the in the headphones to keep me awake, and yeah, it was like a. I think it helped to get me through, and it, it still does. I think it's amazing work. that people tend to have had those strategies when they were students, uh, university students or whatever, and it still is the same sort of thing when you're working now, you know, mm, 20, mm. 30, 40 years on. So it's, mm-hmm. that will be interesting. Stefan, Foz, Hugh Remington, Bruce Dickinson, myself, and some heavy mm. metal music. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it. Thank you so much, Andrew, for your time and the fascinating 
discussion. I know that we could sort of talk for ages, but we'll we'll stop it there. And to everyone else, that's Football Insiders for this week. If you want to catch up on your football reading, there's no better time to do so. Head to fairplaypublishing.com.au where there is not only a library of books, but also our new Play On magazine. I should mention that Andrew's Encyclopedia of Socceroos is no longer available in the original edition hardback, but we do have a soft copy, paperback, which is exactly the same book but just with a soft copy. And it has some wonderful maps in it to get back to what Andrew said earlier. In the meantime, to everyone, please stay safe. Wash your hands, stay home, don't touch your face, and please don't go out at all if you're feeling a little bit sick because we're getting through this. We close with a brief excerpt from Andrew's choice of music. So that'll be fascinating as I go and research what I'm actually going to play. Um, But we'll see what that is. And we'll be back next week with another terrific Football Insiders podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.